Hillcrest Chapel Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Well, good morning, Hillcrest family. Yes, I, I am one of the pastors here, and uh, Betsy and I are now in our 40th year uh, on staff at Hillcrest Chapel. <clears throat> the old guy on the staff. <laughs> um, as I was preparing for this message, by the way, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and then you'll be ready for what we're going to do this morning. But as I was preparing this message, I realized that uh, today, Sunday, July 1st, that's the midpoint of the year, the actual middle of the year. And I thought it was just like two or three weeks ago we celebrated New Year's Eve. I don't know where the time has gone. As I get older, this time just flies by. Um, I don't know if any of you have that experience, but man, it's just amazing. And it was not always this way, because I remember when I was a kid back in Michigan, um, time just crawled by, you know, when you're young and you're waiting for something to happen. And it came to that summer, that special summer, when I was finally going to be allowed to drive the big John Deere tractor down the road and plow a big cornfield with an old two-bottom plow. And, uh, I mean, that for a country boy, that's a rite of passage, you know, drive the tractor and go plow a cornfield. First time, right of passage. Couldn't wait, and time just dragged by. I couldn't seem to get it to, I could never get to that day. Well, it finally happened, and I did it. But the big concern was I had to cross this busy highway. If you are from Michigan, you might know of M20, highway between Midland, Michigan, and Mount Pleasant, Michigan, and it was the busy highway, and I had to go across that in order to get to the cornfield. Well, I was a big concerned about that. Well, that busy highway, I mean, they actually had four or five cars go by every five minutes. <laughs> Times have changed a little bit. Well, this week we are going to celebrate the 4th of July. And the uh, 4th of July, I, I always wonder why they call it the 4th of July holiday, when usually, you know, we refer to it historically as Independence Day. But 4th of July holiday coming up. So what does 4th of July mean to you? Uh, when I was a kid, what it meant was we finally get some firecrackers. And, uh, of course, my brother and I would do everything we could to make sure that as we were getting our firecrackers together, we got a liberal amount of cherry bombs and M80s. Do you know what cherry bombs and M80s are? <laughs> Uh, and then we'd have a contest to see who could take these, either cherry bomb or M80, and put it under a can and get, see who get the can to go the highest in the air uh, and still stay a can before it blew up. But, or we'd stick it in a tomato and see how far we could make it. <laughs> um, now, I, I know for my parents what 4th of July meant to them was we got to worry about these dumb kids and what all the things they're going to do with the firecrackers. <laughs> watch it. So, but now as I get older, I'm thinking about uh, what happened 242 years ago when uh, we supposedly encountered this time where we're declaring the independence from, from Great Britain. Um, 
the Independence Day. We, uh, we celebrate that, and uh, there's, there's some things that are always strange to me because you, we, we call it we, the holiday's 4th of July, but the actual declaration of independence was July 2nd. Thomas Jefferson was the one who was commissioned to write the uh, document, the Declaration of Independence, and so he wrote it in, in June, and this was after a resolution was proposed by Representative Henry, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia. And this was the resolution at that time. Resolved that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states and that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. Well, this is one that commissioned uh, Thomas Jefferson to write the, uh, the Declaration of Independence. And he did this over the uh, course of June, basically, uh, presented it to the Congress of the colonies in, on July 2nd, when it was officially declared independent where we declared the independence from Great Britain. Uh, but the document was then edited for a couple days, and uh, the final draft was actually adopted on July 4th, which is why it carries a July 4th date, okay? Um, but it wasn't actually signed until August 2nd, was the date that the document was signed. And then it didn't get presented to Great Britain until November of that year. So it kind of drug out, and of course then the conflict continued to get drug out, but we finally gained independence from Great Britain. And so we have our freedom, right? Probably asking where is he going with all of this <laughs> at this point. Uh, this is what, how this relates to my message, okay? Uh, the colonies exercise their God-given free will to declare their freedom from Great Britain. Now there's a difference between free will and freedom, and we need to kind of lay that out. Uh, free will, God has given every human being free will. Freedom is something different. We don't always get freedom when we exercise our free will. Adam and Eve found this out when they kind of blew it. They, uh, made a bad choice to rebel against God, and uh, the consequences did not lead to more freedom. In fact, what it led to was bondage to sin and death. Now, Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, I have the right, that is free will, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything but not everything is constructive. And I'm going to add, not everything leads to freedom. So when the colonies chose to exercise this free will, they gained the freedom from Great Britain eventually, but then they became subservient or subject to a new dominion, that is the government of the new United Colonies, which was actually placed in Philadelphia. And so, now we are under a new government, a new dominion. 
So you really you gained, yes, freedom from one dominion, but you're now subject to another. I don't believe that our usual concept of freedom really actually exists. We're always going to be subject to some dominion, government, or kingdom, no matter what our choice is. So yes, we all have free will. And we can exercise that free will regardless of the consequences, as Adam and Eve found out. So the Apostle Paul tells us that if we believe in Jesus Christ and the redemptive work that he accomplished through his death, then if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Well, this begs the question, free from what? Free from what? Paul answers the question in Romans 8, 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's what you become free from. Free from the law of sin and death. Now this basically reverses what happened with Adam and Eve. Because they became subject to sin and death. But now, through the work of Christ, that can be reversed if you exercise your free will to accept what Christ has done. That's your free will. And you have the freedom to make that choice. But you do need to make the choice. The law of sin and death is not the final consequence that any one of us you know, would look forward to. We are certainly looking for something much better than that if we make that choice. So how does this work in our spiritual life? Now, Paul tells us in Romans 6.18, you have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. Now, that might initially rankle you. Do you like to be called slave? Most of us, as soon as we were suggested we're slaves or something, that would kind of upset us a little bit. But this is what Paul says. We're free from sin, but we become slaves to righteousness. Uh, there are two words here that Paul could have used in this particular instance. One is doulos. The other is diakonos. Doulos meaning slave, and diakonos meaning servant. Now, a servant can serve and still be independent. But doulos, a slave, is owned by somebody, belongs to somebody. Paul clears this up in Romans 6, 22. But now that you've been set free from sin, you've become slaves to God. So it's God that owns us. How does that come about? How does God own us? If we make that choice, he owns us because we were bought with the blood of Christ. We were bought away from the law of sin and death by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. So you see, you become free from one dominion, but you become subject to another. And the one that you become subject to 
is much more beneficial to us. And also, by the way, to the kingdom of God. So we trade the consequence of sin and death for eternal life. We trade the consequence of condemnation and guilt for love, joy, and peace. However, Paul provides some additional information that's pretty important here. In Galatians 5.13, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. Serve one another humbly in love. What does it mean to serve one another humbly in love? That raises yet another question for us. Uh, Boy, when I run into these questions, I just keep going back to the Bible, and I can usually find a good answer. So, uh, here again, Paul gives us the answer to this question. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment. And he says it in a different way in Ephesians 21, where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So think of yourselves with sober judgment, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now I've highlighted the word faith here. And the reason that I've done that is because normally when we use the word faith, what we're considering is that faith that saves us. You know, we're saved by faith in Jesus and his work on the cross. We're saved by faith, not by works and so forth. That's the way we normally use the word faith. But the word faith in the Greek does not always have the same meaning. There, it can have more than one meaning. Does that surprise you? You know, there are words in the English language that have more than one meaning. In fact, all languages probably have words that have more than one meaning. So just for example, in the English, let me take the word jam, J-A-M. Now, when I have toast in the morning, I like to spread jam on my toast. So what's the definition of jam? Well, it's a jelly substance made out of fruit that tastes nice and sweet and makes the the toast taste good, right? That's the definition of jam. Uh, But wait a minute. When I fly a helicopter across the country, I have one cubic feet of space underneath my seat to put everything I'm going to need for the extended trip to go across country. And I have to jam everything I need into that one cubic feet of space. So what's the definition of jam? It's trying to put more things in the space than what the space is designed to hold, right? All right, so now I'll tell you, when I drive to Seattle, every time I drive to Seattle, I get into traffic jam. So what's the definition of jam? Well, it's a parking lot between Everett and Olympia, <laughs> right? Uh, now, when I go up to the offices and I'm walking by and one of the other pastors has an open office. Cynthia's got her door open and we want to talk about the uh, seniors ministry coming up. Uh, I might go into her office and her door's open and I'll lean against the jam while I'm talking to her. I'll lean against the door jam. So what's the definition of jam? Well, it's the frame that holds the door. But now it gets a little bit more complicated than that because 
I just spelled it J-A-M. But sometimes it's spelled J-A-M-B. We had a B on the end of the M. Why is English so complicated? Um, same way in the Greece, in the Greek. We have this word faith here, and we have to read it in the context of the sentence, the same as you did understand the way I used jam four different ways. And so here we have to use the word faith in a way in which it's used in the sentence. And so it says, rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. What is this faith that God has distributed to each of us? I'm going to give you a definition that fits in the context of that sentence. The faith in this place refers to the degree that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to exercise the particular gifts that God has distributed to each of you to function in the body of Christ. That's different than the faith that we believe in Jesus and his work on the cross that saves us. It deals with something entirely different. So if I were to read that sentence and plug in that definition, I might say something like, rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the degree to which you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to exercise that particular gift that God has distributed to you to function in the body of Christ. You see how the context of the sentence absorbs what the actual meaning is. We're all given certain gifts or skills that are needed in the church in order to function as God intends. And we're all empowered by the Holy Spirit to different degrees to exercise these gifts that God has distributed to each of us. So here's another question. What are these gifts that God has distributed to us? Well, again, Paul has the answer for us in Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith, in accordance with the degree that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to exercise the particular gift that God has distributed to each of you to function in the body of Christ, putting that definition in there. So you see how the context of that sentence takes the word faith and gives you the meaning of that word. If your gift is prophesying, prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So these are the gifts that Paul enumerates here. And I want to suggest that it probably is just a partial list. He didn't want to go on all day. Um, but we could even take these gifts and break them down into maybe subsets of the gift. For example, take the uh, area, if it's to serve, if it's serving, then serve. Uh, how many different ways can we serve? Uh, let me give you some examples in our church here, Hillcrest Chapel. Uh, we have Pastor Shelley Nebel. Pastor Shelley Nebel is our children's pastor. She has a team of more than 100 workers that serve our children every Sunday downstairs. 
this is a gift that's God given to these brothers and sisters. And, and it's a very important gift to the healthy functioning of this church. We need it. By the way, if this is your gift, see Shelly Nebel. <laughs> she can always use more help. Then we have Dan Persley, our youth pastor, a team of 28 workers that carry on really an exceptionally good middle and high school program. Uh, pastor Dan needs additional help. He particularly needs a man to come alongside and lead one of the small groups for them. One of you out there is that man. See, Pastor Dan, he needs that help because you have that gift. Pastor, pastor Kathy Hill, she has 25 people that work in the hospitality ministry here. And Pastor Kathy would love to talk to you if your gift is hospitality. Carl Furline, our worship pastor, leads a team of about 20 people in different sets that are up here on Sunday uh, leading the worship services. He would welcome you if you're talented in the music area. Uh, particularly is looking for drummers and guitar players. If you have that gift, see Pastor Carlo. These are just a few examples of the kinds of gifts that would become, let's say, a subset of the area of serving. If you have the gift of serving, then serve. There are many more opportunities, both within the church and within our community, broader, wide, and within your workplace, uh, that you, where you can contribute to the work of God's kingdom using the gifts that God has given you through the Holy Spirit. Paul again explains how this works in the church body in Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. For just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now I've highlighted the word belongs here again, and, and I go back and ask you to consider the a statement that Paul made in Ephesians 5.21. Serve none another out of reverence for Christ. Serve one another out of reverence for Christ. We all belong to each other. So do we recognize the church as many members who do not all have the same function? Not always. You know, we have conflicts sometimes in the church that are uh, the result of somebody thinking that everybody else in the church should be passionate about the same thing that they are passionate about. They should have the same giftedness that they have. And whatever it might be, it might be just a dedication to working with missionaries. And everybody else should be on the missions committee. Everybody else should be solely devoted to the missions. And then what happens to the youth program? For example, uh, in their church, we have a very talented administrator in our office, Bev Drost. We couldn't do without her. But if every one of you were as talented in church administration and the office administration as Bev Drost, everyone had the same degree of capability and talent given to you, who would do the teaching? If every one of you were like Meg Brotnoff, a talented accountant, 
that does a wonderful job of keeping our books, keeping our bills paid, and so forth, and managing our money, if every one of you were exactly like that, who would maintain the buildings and the grounds? See, all, we're all different. Do we see the church as one body, even though we're all different? Do we see each of us as members belonging to all of the others? You know, the answers to this question, these questions should be a resounding yes. We do see that in the church because that's how the church works. That's how we work together as a church. Now, Paul strongly encourages us to use these gifts that God has given us. In Romans 12:1, he says it this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Our true and proper worship. Devote our God-given gifts to the body of Christ, to his kingdom work. Well, there are all kinds of ways that we worship, right? I mean, just a little while ago, we were worshiping in song. That was worship. Uh, we're worshiping now in the reading of the Holy Scriptures that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And just reading those words and absorbing them is another form of worship. In a little while, we will worship him as well in our offerings as we recognize he being the source and we give back an offering, that's worship as well. But Paul says it's also our true and proper worship to use these God-given gifts as he intends in the kingdom of God and the work of the church, not only on Sunday, but all week long, all year long, in accordance with his will. Now Paul goes on to say, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing, perfect will. Now, I've highlighted the word transformed here. And the reason is, is because in order to understand what is being said here, we've got to understand what that word transformed really means. Uh, the Greek word that comes out transformed in English is also the Greek word that we get the word metamorphosis from. Metamorphosis, the lowly caterpillar that drags his belly along the dirt, goes through a metamorphosis, a process of metamorphosis through the cocoon, and gradually emerges as a beautiful butterfly floating free on the breeze. Metamorphosis. One of the definitions of metamorphosis is a striking alteration in character. A striking alteration in character. And when we come to the Lord and give our lives to the Lord, we probably all have had this experience. There is a striking alteration in character. That happened to me when I came to the Lord. Probably happened to all of you when you came to the Lord. A striking alteration in character. Now this word transformed is only found one other place in the New Testament. 
And uh, those of you who were around when Pastor Bob Stone was here for 28 years, he was an exceptionally good Bible teacher. And uh, one of the things that he taught us during that 28-year term of service here was to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Right? Remember that, those of you who were here? Um, so, this word transformed is only found one other place in Scripture. So let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. We find a clear understanding of the word, actually, when we go to 2 Corinthians 3.18, where is the other place it's used. And we all with, all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Being transformed, going through a metamorphosis, experiencing a alteration, a striking alteration in character. This is one of the results of using our God-given gifts in his kingdom in order to do what his will is in the kingdom of God. So we're not only accomplishing the kingdom work, God's kingdom work, but we're also allowing the spirit to work in us in a process that gradually transforms, takes us through metamorphosis, causes a very striking alteration in character that's taking place, and the result is we're being transformed into his image. Or as Paul says in Romans 8.28, we are being conformed to the image of his son. Now, I should have highlighted the word being here too, because in both of these scriptures I've read, uh, the word being is in front of the word transformed or being conformed. Being, that means it isn't complete. It's in process. We are all in process of being conformed. And the work of our, uh, our gifts and talents and so forth that are God-given are part of the process of that transformation that takes place and part of our true and proper worship. As Paul says in Romans 8.28, being conformed to the image of his son, but a process. Now the ultimate goal is promised in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not been made known yet because the process is incomplete. We're being conformed, but we have not reached the final point yet. We're in the process of being conformed. But what we, have, what we will be has not yet been made known. But we will know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is. Okay, let me see if I can pull this all together. We begin with the recognition that God created us with free will, okay? Mankind misused this free will 
to rebel against God. We became in the bondage to sin and death. God then sent his son to free us from the consequences of our rebellion. And the work of Jesus on the cross gives us the freedom to choose which dominion or kingdom we want to be part of. If we choose Jesus in God's kingdom, then in addition to eternal life, we receive the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit to receive the unique gifts, talents, and abilities that God wants us to exercise in his church. And exercising these gifts in the church is one form of worship, what Paul calls our true and proper worship. And again, by God's grace, this begins a process where over time we're gradually being transformed, going through metamorphosis, a striking alteration in character, by the renewing of our mind and we're being transformed in the image of Christ. When this life ends, we will see Christ in the resurrection to come and we shall be like him. Now it all began when God created mankind. And when he created mankind, he created him in, in his image. But humans screwed it up, right? They blew it. And the consequence was, became in bondage to sin and death. But Christ came and bought a way out for us. He bought us with his own blood. And so if we allow that process to take place, that transformation to take place by our choice, exercising free will, when we see him, we will be like him. And this new life will last for eternity. For eternity. One of my favorite hymns is Amazing Grace. Uh, one of the stanzas kind of says it all, really. Uh, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. I want you to do something for me. Um, you're going to wonder why I'm asking this. but Just blink your eye once. Blink your eyes once. Boom. Tell me, how long did it take for that blink of the eye to, to take place. A small fraction of a second, right? Well, this life that we're living is not even a blink of the eye when compared with eternity. You know, we, we fight, and we struggle, and we endure hardships, and we worry and concern. And the things we put ourselves through in this life, which in reality is not even a blink of the eye compared with eternity, the eternity that we'll have with Jesus in God's kingdom. Because we are children of God. If you're children of God, that means you're also brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. And if you're brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ, it means you are joint heirs with the kingdom of God. That's our future. It's going to take a process, but we're going to get there. But keep 
the meantime, in perspective, keep it in perspective, because it's just less than a blink of an eye when compared with our eternity with Christ. So even presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, exercising our gifts as the Holy Spirit guides us, it's really no sacrifice at all, but a joy in the service of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that the, the Holy Spirit would speak to each of us from these scriptures and to give us guidance in how to use the gifts that you've given us because we want to serve you. We want to serve you according to your will. And we need that, that nudge of the Holy Spirit constantly in our lives to be able to do that. And help us to keep into perspective the things that we battle with and deal with, the struggles we have in this life. Because in terms of eternity, they mean nothing. They mean nothing. Except for how we handle them, perhaps. Trusting in you, trusting in your will, trusting in your, your care for us in every way. So we commit ourselves to you again, Lord. and commit ourselves to you. We ask you to, to be with us, guide us, and help us through this process. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Chapel. For more info on this and other sermons, go online to hillcrestchapel.com or visit us at 1400 Larrabee Ave in Bellingham, Washington any Sunday morning, 9 or 11 a.m.